All right. Thanks, Chaz. You guys can grab a seat. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew 25. Um, yeah, so each year as a faith family, we, uh, we join in with various traditions around the world and enter into kind of this season um, of epiphany, a season in which um, it kind of flows out of Advent and Christmas into, um, into what we kind of have now is a time of looking at all that Christ has done and revealed, right? So like, so Advent is this anticipation, the season before Christmas of anticipating, longing for God to come and restore himself to us, to, to, for the world to be as it was before, right? For God and men to dwell together. Um, and then Christmas comes and Christmas is here. But we often, even in Christmas's arrival, um, have to kind of relearn how to live in relationship to God who is with us. That we have to learn anew what life looks like when God dwells among us, when Emmanuel is here. And so historically, there's this season of looking at um, epiphany, a season of looking at the revelation, the enlightenment that has come when Jesus arrived. The good news of God's kingdom come, God's kingdom with us. This is what uh, Timothy, uh, Paul says it to Timothy. He says, God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not because of our works, because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages begin, and which now, after Advent, has been manifested through the epiphany of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The light of the good news of the kingdom of God with us, his will being done on earth as it is in heaven, is being played out in our everyday lives. Did you know that? Did you realize that? Do we recognize that? That the good news of God with us and for us, the kingdom of God and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven, plays out in our everyday lives. And that's the good news, that through Jesus, what shapes our ordinary existence, connects us days and weeks and months and years is a life in which we are known, loved, and purposed in the intimacy of our Savior and Creator. It's this season of epiphany, this time where together as the church, our faith family and the church globally, we have wondered at the grace and truth of the nature of this king and his kingdom. The, the, the beauty and wonder of what this truth looks like in daily life. That we know that, that the word became life and dwelt among us, that showed us life and what life was to look like and allows the light of life, Jesus himself, to enlighten us to the reality of our daily and forever existence through his stories of intent. So the way we do it as a faith family, the way we kind of ask the question of what does this life look like in the kingdom? How do we go about living life in the kingdom of God? We let Jesus at the beginning of every year shape Shape us through his stories, through parables. And every year we begin the year off looking at the parables of Jesus, wondering and asking what life is meant to look like for us and how does our life look, look like? Because the reality is, and I think this is true of us, right? That we aren't only aspiring at the beginning of a new year to lose weight. We're not only aspiring at the beginning of a new year to get outside more, to spend less, to plan better, or succeed at the things that we're after to achieve. That those other things are bad, right? But we, there's more than what we want than those things, right? That we aspire for something more than just the immediacy of some of those goals. That we actually, as a faith family, long for life full and forever, a life of meaning and purpose and joy. That that's what we're actually after as humans, and us particularly as a faith family. 
And so our resolve is to live the only true life, life in relationship with life himself, and to follow along with others who are receiving the same life from him. That's what we resolve to do. That's what we long to do. And so we ask one another again today, one last time as Epiphany comes to a close for our faith family, how are we to respond to the king and his kingdom? What does Jesus expect of us? If Jesus has come, if God is with us, the thing that we long for in humanity is here, what's expected? How is life expected to be lived? What expectations should shape our resolutions, should give us our goals, should determine what we do in the year to come? To answer this, again, we'll look at one final story of intent, the parable of the richly entrusted and wholly possessed. So again, Matthew 25. This parable has a doppelganger in Luke's gospel. It's in Luke chapter 19. So it's a familiar parable. It's a parable maybe in your translations that's called parable of the tenants. In Luke's gospel, it's called the parable of the minas. Um, and so you've probably heard this once or twice before um, if you've been in the church at all. And if you haven't, that's great. You'll get to experience this from a fresh standpoint, which is awesome. But what you need to know about this parable is in both Luke's account and in Matthew's account, this parable follows in a series of parables. It's not a standalone parable. It's not a standalone story. It's actually told in both accounts, in both gospel stories, at the time when Jesus makes a turn in his life and direction towards Jerusalem for the last time. He starts moving towards the cross. What will happen in shortly after this parable is that Jesus will die that he'll be crucified, he'll be buried, and three days later, he'll rise again. Like the, the, all the kind of the things that we think of when we think about what Jesus has done is about to happen. And in both accounts, Jesus is preparing his disciples as he makes his turn towards it. He's already let them know. They know, uh, at, least, at least in conversation, um, that he's supposed to die. They don't understand why yet, really. They don't have it kind of figured out yet. And so instead, they actually kind of think that um, the, Jesus, the truth of Jesus is that he really is bringing in God's kingdom. He really is about to topple all the kingdoms of the world, especially the kingdom of their little world, right? The Roman kingdom or the kingdom of the religious or whatever kingdom that, that seems to control their world, whatever group controls the world. They really believe Jesus is about to topple that. But like a lot of us, the way they think Jesus is gonna topple that is not quite accurate, right? Like they expect Jesus to overcome the kingdoms of this world in a way that's gonna be really surprising when, he, when he's in a few days hanging on a cross, right? In a few days when he's buried and gone. In a few days when now he's alive again. Like that's all about to happen. And so in some ways, Jesus is telling these stories to help prepare them for what's about to happen, to help them begin to see that how the manifestation of God's own grace and purpose is a little bit different than what their perceptions are of how God actually works and what God's actually doing. That, that God has an intent for them and wants them to be a part of it, but that like us, they often miss it and misunderstand it. So today, we're, what we're gonna do is we're gonna read through the story together and I'm gonna point out some of the cultural and linguistic nuances that kind of help us better understand what's happening because we, we say this all the time, right? Like sometimes when we read these stories, either out of familiarity or just lack of like, like understanding of the original language or the understanding of the, the culture, we miss some things, right? We kind of read in our own uh, existence. We kind of read in our own ideas. And so how do we kind of counter that? Well, we try to kind of tell the story in a little more, with a little more clarity. 
where a first century person who heard Jesus say this would have filled in the dots, we try to fill in some of those dots for ourselves, right? So we kind of humbly set ourselves up for that. And so I'm just gonna read the parable and it may look a little different than your translation in your Bible, depending on what, your, what translation you're reading. So we're gonna have the words that I read up on the screen. So you can kind of look and see where the differences and similarities are. But all we're doing is kind of fleshing out a little bit more detail than what's, what's given there, but not adding anything, just fleshing out the detail a little more. So again, this parable takes place where Jesus is talking specifically to his disciples. So Jesus said in verse, um, in, in, um, in the very, very first verse of Matthew 25, verse 14, he says, Jesus is saying to his apprentices, because again, the story started back in, in Matthew 24, Jesus said to his apprentices, his disciples, for it, for the kingdom of heaven. When he says it, he's talking about kingdom of heaven. That's, that's Matthew's favorite way of talking about life with God and man together again, the kingdom of heaven. So he says, for the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his bond slaves, bond slaves, and entrusted them to what was already his possession. So a couple things on the outset we need to note, right? The, again, the person listening to Jesus speak, the disciples would have picked up on this right away, but we kind of maybe need a little explanation. First, Jesus is speaking to those who are his disciples. Like he's, he's speaking to those who have seen the light, who have waited in, for Advent, has seen its manifestation, who desire to follow him, and so our parable is not a story about insiders and outsiders. It's not a story about those who are in and those who are out. In fact, Jesus is saying, these are the ones who are really in, right? This is a story to those who are really in, who are bought in, fully bought in, fully bought into Jesus, fully committed into to following him. In fact, we know that because he calls them slaves. Bond slaves is, a, is a, probably a little more accurate translation but the word is slaves. And it's the same word that Peter uses to describe himself later, right? When Peter writes his letter to the church, he describes himself as a slave, as a bond servant. And here's, a, here's the, the description. It's a person who, the, whom the master wholly possesses. The person whom the master wholly possesses. Their identity, purpose, provision, and future depend on the master. That's what the idea of bond slave is. And listen, this word has um, harshness to it for us, right? And rightfully so, right? The idea of slave and a bond slave being owned and, and, and possessed, wholly possessed by, um, by someone is a horrid thing in our experience, right? We know that. That's why our translations dub it servant, right? Because, because we, have, we have done horrific things with that reality. But as we'll see, if you stay with it, while the word is harsh and rightfully so, we'll see Jesus transforms our perception of what is actually happening, who we actually are in the story, right? Like he'll just, he will transform our perception of what it means to be wholly possessed. He'll redeem it in a way that I think is really helpful for us. Um, okay, so these are people who are wholly possessed by the master. Their life depends on the master, their life comes from the master, and they recognize that position, right? So take that into account. Second, while his apprentices assumed their vision of the kingdom would be a visible reality, Jesus is setting them up for the expectation that the kingdom comes slowly. He set them up for the kingdom comes slowly. We know this by the preceding parables in both Luke and Matthew. All the parables that are before, before it are told to help them kind of get the expectation that this isn't gonna happen right away. Like this change of guard, this overcoming doesn't happen immediately. And he says it in this parable by setting up that the master goes on a long journey. 
And as we'll see, it's a pretty long journey before he comes back. He's gone for a lot longer, um, and his return is not nearly as imminent as the people had hoped, right? So he's setting them up for that. And lastly, we'll notice that the man going on the journey entrusts those who are wholly possessed by him with what is essentially and practically his life, which is pretty incredible, right? So again, if you're reading like the ESV, for example, it probably says property, right? That he entrusted to them his property. The word in the original language doesn't mean merely physical possessions. It actually means the essence of life, livelihood of the one that possesses it. It's the thing that allows the person to live. It's life itself, right? It's the things that make up life itself. So what the master is entrusting to those wholly possessed by him is his own life. Everything that accounts for his life. Everything that makes up his life allows his life to be lived at the level that it's lived, right? It's everything under his care, in his possession. And listen, it's wholly his, and it's only his. The master is entrusting something that is already and only, wholly and completely his, to ones that he assumes are trustworthy and capable. That's pretty incredible, right? That he gives his life, and we'll see in just a second how much of his life, gives his life to those that he believes that he can trust and that are capable to do something with it. That's pretty dignifying, don't you think? In other words, the master is elevating the bond slaves to a place of honor. He takes them from not being merely servants and slaves, but puts them into a place of honor just by his gift, just by his entrusting, just by his giving of responsibility. They are elevated from being merely ones who are possessed to being ones now who have responsibility. They're stewards of what has been given to them. It's not their own. He entrusts them with both dignity and resources. Pretty incredible. So the master's action reveals something that's really peculiar, especially in the first century. He would have already at the first sentence, there would have been something unsettled in those that are listening. They would have picked up that in the first century, a bond slave and a master don't have this kind of relationship. That this is an abnormal way of, of, of interacting. That there is a, a sense of mutuality that the bond servants trust the master and the master trusts the bond servants. It's not equality, they're not the same. There's a difference between the master and the, and the bond servants. The bond servants need the master, but the master entrusts them not just with things, but with his life. So there's some sort of intimacy and mutuality. There's some sort of, of, of dignity in relationship that would have been weird for the first century, right? That wouldn't have felt like normal, right? And so they would have caught that right away. And so they would have kind of been on the lookout for the next verse. So what does this master give? He gives this property, okay, it sounds a little weird. This master's kind of seems a little bit more trusting and intimate with his servants and bond slaves than would be expected. He dignifies them in a way that maybe seems a little bit elevated. Okay, so maybe that's not that big of a deal. Maybe he's not uberly rich, right? But we'll go into the next, the next verse, right? Verse 15, to one he gave 100 years worth of wages. It might, it, it, it might say five talents in your translation, but we'll get to that in a second. A hundred years worth of wages to another 40 years worth of wages and to another 20 years worth. 
each according to the measure of what they could do the most with. And then he went away. Again, three quick things. First, a talent, which is what your translation has, is a measurement of weight. It's a measurement of weight. And it's specifically the weight of silver. Um, and it's roughly the weight of silver, a talent is roughly a weight of silver of 6,000 denarii. 6,000 daily wages, abundant daily wages, if you remember this, the other parables we talked about, or 20 years worth of expected wages for a consistent labor, for a consistently good and well-done labor, <laughs> right? So what these dignified bond slaves are entrusted with is enormous fortune. Enormity, absurd enormity. They are entrusted with this, right? They're not just given a little bit of responsibility, like, hey, here's, here's a... <laughs> Really bad. Here's here's a hundred bucks. Keep keep living on it. Like make sure you do it with it. Or here's a thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars. It's like no 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 no. Here's enough to cover everything you need for you and your family for generations. Generational wealth. Like you're given generational wealth. I mean that's pretty incredible, right? So there's no minimalizing their honor. To have someone give you this generational wealth is an honoring thing. But there's not so a lot of responsibility comes with that, right? A lot of weight comes with that, right? Like that, hey, there's, there's expectation. Life with the master brings a significant commissioning and an empowerment for each of them. They will, everyone will have everything that they need to live, right? Generationally, not just in the moment, not just today, but for generations to come. They're given that. Second, the ESV reads that the amount given was according to his ability. Now, it, was, it wasn't until the 1400s that we started to equate the word talent, weight, this kind of, um, this weightedness with like a skill. Like that you have personal talents, right? When you hear the word talents, you think it's things that I can do, right? And so, and we tend to kind of have a hierarchical understanding of talents. There's those with more talents. So obviously the one with five talents was more talented than the one with two talents. And the one with two talents more talented than the one with one, that was given one. That's not how the original language understood it, right? Again, a talent is just a weight of measurement for a particular thing. And what the original language said is essentially the word or phrase denoted not a level of skills, but rather an equal measurement of balance. So to, to, to give according to one's ability, in other words, the master had to know what each servant could do the most with. That it wouldn't overburden the servant, but that the servant would be given exactly the amount able to do the most that would allow them to flourish and the community to flourish. They were given exactly what they needed to live life full and well for generations. Like, according to them. So it, it assumes that the master knew them with intimacy. That his, in his not just giving them a general amount, but giving them all individual amounts, and the way Matthew tells the story, he's not just elevating them to a place of honor, but he's showing how much the master actually knows them. And he's giving them what they can handle. And not just what they can handle, like in the sense of, like, we're going to overload them but like what they can handle in a sense of this is what will actually allow you to live a full life in a flourishing life, right? There's, there's, a, there's, there's a piece of that. Like it's gonna be as much as you can handle, like, like weight carrying it, but it's gonna be exactly what you can handle. So it's not gonna feel like a drag or a burden. 
No one received too little and no one received too much. All right, last in the first two sentences of, of the story, they were given this abundant but uniquely appropriate resources and it was assumed that they could and would make the most of them because the master went away. He didn't stay around and micromanage, right? The bond slaves had seen how to live the way the master had managed his household and the master assumed that what they had seen was enough for them to continue to imitate and live what they had seen. And so he goes. He assumed that they had, in following him, wholly being wholly possessed by him, entrusted by him, given the right and appropriate, uniquely designed amount of resources for them, that they could actually competently live. Live in a way that honored him, lived in a way that aligned with him, lived in a way that continued to allow for flourishing for themselves and for the community. they were not expected to do anything more or different than what the master had done. Rather, as the story in Luke's gospel says, they were to engage in business because he's returning, expecting that, like, that at some point he's gonna come back. Or to put it more plainly, the master's saying to them, go about your business in a manner that aligned with my agenda and what you have observed from my life. And that's important, right? Because that's gonna come later in the story. That he assumes that they can know how to use what they've been given, honor, dignity, and resources, honor, dignity, and all the things that they need for life. He assumes that they, can, they know how to do it in a way that honors him and leads to flourishing because they've seen it in him. They've observed it in him. All right, so far, in the first two sentences of the parable, uh, we, we have seen that the kingdom of heaven, again, Matthew's favorite way of describing reality, looks like a dependent but mutually entrusting relationship between a bond slave and a master in which abundant and uniquely determined resources for life are provided with the expectation of imitating a way of life observed and the assumption that those that have been powered were able to do just that. I mean, that's a pretty big picture of the kingdom of God, right? It's a pretty amazing picture of life with God. And the parable could have stopped there. The parable could have stopped at this life in which there's a mutually um, um, entrusting relationship that we have all that we need from our master to live, that we've been empowered and observed to see all that we need to see in order to live life well. And it could have stopped there, but Jesus doesn't stop the parable there. He keeps going. And he keeps going because I think he wants to give us a picture that will encourage us and challenge us to hold to the truth that he's outlaid for us in the first two verses. So we keep going. Verse 17. The one who had received a hundred years worth of wages went at once and traded with them. That is, put what the master had given him, what the master knew he could profit for, from for the purposes of the master and put it to work. He did good use with it. He traded with it. He, he took what was the master's that was given to him and he went and started to apply it into life, right? And what happened? He made a hundred years more. Just the absurdity of this, right? Like he took a hundred years worth of wages and made a hundred years more. There's a bit of an absurdity to this. It's like, oh, that shouldn't be. I mean, that's never how life works, right? That's never how, how math works. That's never how business works, right? This is not how life really works. There's supposed to be a little bit of absurdity to this, right? And so he made 100 years more. And so also the one who had 40 years, making 40 years more. It seems like everything, it, everything all he had to do was put it to work and it doubled, right? But the one who had received 20 years of wages went and dug in the ground and hid the master's money. 
Obviously, by the actions of the third person, we know that there's a risk. The risk uh, um, for these bond servants to put into action the things that the master had given them to do, the resources the master had given them. In Luke's gospel, Luke, Luke pulls out the, 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 um, the risk more, uh, makes it more explicit. He says there's those in opposition to the master and to his way and to his rule and who don't want his resources out in the community, who rather would have the resources for themselves and who oppose him having any sort of say on how the resources are used and all those kind of things, right? Who, who, who want life for themselves and life without the master. There's an opposition to it. There's a risk. That, that at some level, they're gonna have to risk their honor, their place of honor and their resources if something goes wrong with how they use the gifts, right? They could put them to work and lose them. They could squander them. They could find that they weren't as good at living life well as the master assumed they were. Maybe they'll be exposed as ones who aren't the best bond servants and the most trustful. Like, right? Like, there's, those are real things, right? Like, think about if you've been given that. Like, would you feel that pressure? There's a pressure, right? There's an external opposition. There's internal opposition. There's a risk of losing what you've been given. But the first two elevated servants trust that what they've received was given because the master knew best, knew them best, knew what they could handle, what was theirs, knew them intimately, and that his trust meant that in trusting them, even if they failed, the master would, would pay the price. But the master didn't entrust this to them with the expectation that they would be perfect and not screw any of it up or not double, even double the things, right? But the master entrusted this to them because he knew them. He saw in them something and believed that they could walk these things out because he's a really wise master. And that if somehow they screwed up, that the master that's that generous and that gracious would be continuously generous and gracious. And so they acted out of trust. But the third one isn't so sure. In the midst of the external and internal pressures, maybe overwhelmed by the responsibility, maybe not desiring to do the work itself, like it's, it's easier just to, to use what I have that's my own, not what's been given to me, but what's my own and just do with it and not have to worry about somebody else's stuff. And listen, it was an acceptable way to, to, uh, um, to secure things by digging a hole and putting it into it. And so that's what the third servant chooses, chooses to do. He says, I want to secure that nothing will be wasted by even well-meaning risk or effort. I don't wanna waste anything. I don't wanna accidentally screw this up. I don't wanna trip up and, and, and mess up what I've been given. So I'm gonna bury it. I'm gonna secure it. In verse 19, now after a long time, the master of the house, after a long time, again, this is a slow process, right? I'm like, slow reestablishing the kingdom. The master of those bond slaves came and settled accounts with them. Dignified resource and given an expectation to imitate, the bond slaves now find themselves face to face with the one who bestowed this identity and purpose. The entrusting master comes to see the elevated bond servants have done with his life in them. And this is what happens. Verse 20. And the one who had received the 100 years wages came forward, bringing 100 years more, saying, Master, you delivered to me 100 years wages. Here, I have made 100 years more. And his master said to the bond slave, Well done, good and faithful servant. 
Well done, good and faithful bond slave. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master, sharing in the life I enjoy. Listen, the, the bond slave acknowledges the source of what he's responsible for. Here's your 100 years wages. Here's what you've given me. And he acclaims, like, following your way, living life as you intended me to live, doing the, with, with these things, what you intended me to do with these things, producing more absurdity. Your absurd gift produced more, more abundance and absurd gifts. More abundance and absurd life, generous life. He isn't bragging. I mean, there's a little bit of bragging, right? But he isn't fully bragging. No one brags to, to, to a master like that. In the original language, it reads more like, Master, look what your money did. And obviously, the servant, the bond slave, had, was a significant part of the production. He just wasn't the source of it. It wasn't the power behind it. What, what came out was what was going to come out when he entrusted, when he did what, with what he was entrusted. It's not the number that impresses the entrusting master either, but rather the faithfulness of the one entrusted to do what was expected, right? He says the same thing. He'll say the same thing to the person who came back with 40. It's not the number that he's impressed with, but it's the faithfulness of the one entrusted to do what was expected. And don't pass this over too quickly, but the master says that he was faithful in 100 years wages, he was faithful in a little thing. In a little thing. He calls a 100 years wages, generational wealth, a little thing, and gives him more. I will, remember, what does he say? He says, look, you have been faithful in a little, I will set you over much. I've given you a little, now I'm gonna continue to elevate you over even more. And again, little is not a hierarchical sense of inferiority, but rather the expansiveness of all that the master possesses and desires. That all that the, the servant had in abundance, which seems like an absurd abundance, 100 years wages, is in actuality just a minor portion of all that the master possesses and all that the master desires for the bond servant. There's apparently much more responsibility, opportunity, resources, life in its fullness beyond even this absurd gift. And then the most important statement. The master says, enter into the joy of your master. Says to the bond slave. Better put, share in the life I enjoy. This is what the master's saying to the servant. Share in the life I enjoy. The bond slave in that moment and this is what would have been heard in the first century. They would have recognized it right away. That the bond slave experiences in final fullness what has been alluded to and demonstrated by how the master has treated and entrusted the bond slave. The slave becomes a co-heir, a part of the family. He's not a slave anymore. He's wholly possessed. He knows where his life comes from, but he's not a slave anymore. He's a part of the family. He's brought into the joy of his master not just to, like, now the master's happy and you come into happy. In the actual language, it's a state of being. It's a state of, of, of again, this kind of equality that's not equality, right? This mutuality that's not exactly the same. That he's brought into this partnership and relationship with the master in a way that is fully known and clear. He's elevated out of 
the idea of slave, of being a slave, and into the responsibility, the honor, and authority of being one in the family. The same affirmation and blessing are given to the second bond slave who only did what was entrusted and empowered to him to do as well. Verses 22 and 23 says, and the one who had received the 40 years wages came forward and saying the same thing. Master, you delivered to me 40 years wages. Here I've made 40 years more. Here's what your resources have done. And the master once again says to the bond slave, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Share in this life I enjoy. Become a part of the family. Not that they weren't before, but now they get to experience in full, right? Again, the master had already demonstrated to these slaves that he entrusted them, that he empowered them, that he elevated them, that he believed that what they got to experience was the truth of what they could do. And so in some ways, it's not a revelation from the master to them. It's a self-revelation of the servants, of the bond slaves, that we're not merely slaves. We are wholly possessed, but we're not merely slaves. We're part of the family. And we always have been. And now it's just fully true and clear without confusion. Take what is entrusted to you, the life of the master, specifically and uniquely for you. Use it, even if it's risky to do so, in the way that the master would intend, right? In the way the master has shown and find that you are a child. That's the good news, right? That's the beauty of the story. That's awesome. But there's this third guy. There's this third bond servant. Like again, the the parable could have stopped twice now. It would have been great. We would have been good, right? Like, yes, and amen. This is the way life is. But there's one other person that we've got to account for. So what happened to the third bond slave? The one who out of timidity or apathy or out of just kind of this like desire not to screw up, just lived but did nothing with what was entrusted to him. Verse 24 says, Now also the one who had received 20 years' wages came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your money in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. A couple of things here. First, what is the bond slave's perception of the master? He says it pretty explicitly, right? You're a hard man. You reap what you don't sow. You take what's not yours. Does his perception of the master at all reflect what we've seen of the master so far in the story? Not to mention the other parables we've been looking at all month. Does it at all align with anything we know about the master in the story? From what we know of the master thus far, does the master take what is not his? I mean, what was given? Did he give anything that wasn't his away? No, he gave all that was his away. He gave only what was his away. It seems that the master is already giving away what is already his. He gives away life, responsibility, and trust. He doesn't take what's not his. He gives what is his. So it's fair to say that the bond slave misperceived the nature and character of both the master and therefore the expectations of the master's household, right? Can we say that that's fair? That the, that this, the third one misperceived the nature and character of the, the master. He's an inaccurate view of the master. The master is not one who takes what's not his, reaps where he does not sow. In fact, he only gives what is his, and he gives it entrustingly and abundantly and generously. And so because he misperceives the nature of the master, he also misperceives what the master expects of him. 
Because obviously, if the master is one who only who reaps what he doesn't, so yeah, you don't want to lose any of that guy's stuff, right? You don't want to waste any of that guy's stuff because when he comes back, he's going to not just demand it. Like if you don't have it, he's going to take it from you, right? That's what essentially the bondservant thinks. That's what the third one thinks. That if I waste it, he's going to take what, all, what is mine from me, not just what was his from me. So that's why he hid everything that was the master's, right? So he misperceives even his own responsibility in it. And yet, unlike the lost son and the dishonest steward that we looked at earlier this month, he fails to recognize his misperception and offers an excuse for his actions. We know that the servant is a bit off, not just from the story, but from his misguided response. You see, the unfaithful, untrusting bond slave is attempting to compliment the master in his response. No one would stand before their master, especially a master who takes what's not his, right? If that's what was true. No one would stand in front of a master and provide a direct insult. I mean, this is true now in a, in a Middle Eastern context, right? It was even more true then, right? You do not offend the person with the authority over life, your life. You don't do that. So he's not insulting the master. He's trying to compliment the master. Essentially, the bond slave is saying that his master is a thief, a criminal, a crook, but a really good one. You take what's not yours. You reap where you don't sow. You're really great at being a criminal, a crook, twisted. And while that seems odd to us, it's not if you think about, say, the Gauls of the 4th and 5th century or the Vikings of the 8th and 11th century, or the Bedouins of Jesus' day, or maybe even the Roman oppressors who were there around in the moment, all of whom believe that the most noble way to earn your fortune is by taking someone else's. Right? That's what the bondservant is saying to the master. You've acted nobly. You've taken someone else's riches and become rich. Because isn't that how richness works? We saw that last week, right? Don't we assume that to have riches at the, is always at the cost of those who don't have? You took it from someone else. And so you see, the servant perceives the master to rule in the same manner as many other rulers of their time. He thinks the master's way is not unlike the other ways of power in the world. That somehow the master's way of living in power and wealth and abundance, living in life, comes from the same source and the same means as everybody else. His bond slave failed to pick up on the different way in which the master lived and expected his servants to live. The humiliating compassion, the absurd generosity, the dignifying trust that he received, he's observed, he's experienced, he does not assume that he should live that. He assumes, he receives it, but he doesn't repeat it, imitate it, right? And the longer the master's away, the longer the gift of life to its fullest sat dormant hidden away in fear, in muddled, muddied view of how the kingdom really works. And the more perverted the bond slave's perception of the nature and character of his master became. And that is truly a grievous and consequential shame, right? This is when the story becomes a warning, right? From this beautiful picture of the kingdom and what it is to a warning for those, again, those of us who are in and all in, right? That's who this is to, who are in and all in, right? And so, so twisted did the servant's perception of the master get and the expectation of how his household work become that the bond servant is called wicked. One who acts in hostility to the good of the master and the household. He's not just called incompetent. 
He's called in opposition. He's not merely one who just misperceived and hid it away, and so he's not competent with what he was been given. But he's actually one who, by his hiding it away, by his failure to trust what he got to experience and live into the fullness of it, actually finds himself in the opposition to the very thing that the master was doing, the very kingdom that he was a part of. And here's where the story gets really sad and becomes, again, a warning to us all, so enthusiastic about the kingdom of God, but forgetting that the truth of the king and the kingdom are more significant than what we perceive. Verse 26 says, the master answered this bond slave, you wicked servant and lazy. Again, he calls him wicked, not, not incompetent, but in opposition. And you're, and you're lazy. Like, you just, you didn't put any effort in whatsoever. You knew, and listen to this, I'm gonna try to, I'm gonna try to read this in a way that it comes out. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed, do you? In their language, it's, it's a question. It's, it's do, do you really know that? Do, do, are, are you sure that I reap where I don't sow? Or are, are, are you sure that I gather when, when it's not, not, what's not mine? Are you, are you sure about that? Like that's what the master's talking to the servant. Are you, are you sure you got that right? And then he says, well, if, if, if you did, then you ought to have invested my money with the crooked money lenders. It says bankers probably in your translation, but banking was, was not a, a legal trade in the Jewish community uh, in the way that you couldn't charge interest. So you could bank, but you couldn't charge interest. It's against the Torah, right? So Jews couldn't charge other Jews interest. So if they're charging interest, then they're actually criminals. They're doing something against the law. And the money changers were the ones who would take interest off, who would add interest to the exchanging of resources for money to be able to sacrifice and live in the kingdom, to be able to go in the temple and to worship. And that's who Jesus says that you should have acted like. If, if you think I'm one who takes what I don't sow, then, and you think I'm a criminal, then why don't you be a criminal? Why don't you put my money in the hands of criminals? If I'm a criminal, then be a criminal. Then I would have at least gotten what was my own with some interest. If, if I'm a crook, then why didn't you act like a crook? If you observed me as being a crook, then why didn't you act like a crook? But, because he didn't observe him acting like a crook, right? He never observed the master acting like a crook. He didn't see the master invested in the money lenders. He received from the master what was the master's own, right? If that's what you thought I was like, you should have been a clever crook too. I think Jesus says this with a little bit of tongue in cheek, especially for those of us um, that were here last week, we talked about the, the clever crook that Jesus uh, um, actually encourages to be a clever crook, but the, that crook just took advantage of grace. <laughs> He's like, at minimum, to this, to this bond servant, this one who hid it away, at minimum, you should have at least taken advantage of what I gave you and just used it, right? Used it all up. Even if it didn't return anything. But you didn't even do that. You just buried it. At minimum, you should have just taken advantage of the grace and generosity that you received, and yet you didn't do anything with it. The master's not validating the bond slave's perception, but rather he is letting the misperception become the bond slave experience of reality. He's saying to the bond slave, this is what you think of me. I'm not validating it's true, because it's not true. The story tells us that it's not true. 
but it's going to become true for you. You want your truth? Here's your truth. You want your own truth? Here's your own truth. The master continued. So take the 20-year wages from this servant and give it to the one who has 100 years wages. That would have been an unexpected twist in the story. Like the one who has the most giving even more to, like that would have felt strange. And again, it continues the idea of absurd generosity that's kind of gone through this entire thing, absurd grace, unearnedness, all those kind of things. And then the master says, for everyone who has more will be given and they will have an abundance. For everyone who has more will be given, not taken away, not removed, but will be given more and given more abundantly. But from the one who has not, even what they have will be taken away. And cast the useless bond slave into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping, wells of lament, bitter grief of hopelessness, and gnashing of teeth, embittered, angry biting. Paraphrasing the conversation, the entrusting master says to the enslaved, honored and endowed, an empowered bond slave, what condemns you to life of stumbling and bitter faith is your own misperception. What an awful place to be. To be one who has been empowered and entrusted and given everything that you need for life and not just life, but life more than can be imagined. To have it removed, not because of what you did or didn't do in the sense of um, live it like, um, like reaching like a higher mark of, of checking all the boxes, but simply because you didn't use it. Simply because you just didn't take advantage of it. Simply because you perceived that in the generosity that you received, that you didn't have enough. That more would be required of you. In the darkness of misperceptions, Unaware that we live life in the humiliating compassion, absurd generosity, dignifying an intimate and trusting kingdom in which we are gifted all that we need for a per, for, to prosper for ourselves and others, we stumble. Even those who are fully in, right? If we don't see the king and the kingdom rightly, if we don't see what we've been given rightly, we stumble into a life in which though we're known and loved and purposed, loved, capable, and part of something bigger than ourselves, that we're enlightened to the truth that a life used in the way of the master returns back bountifulness, yet we're full of doubt and fear, timidity, apathy. That we enjoy none of this wondrous place and generous household. What a sad, sad place to be. Who would not find faith in that darkness as something lamentable and bitter. But why is the bondservant there? Right? Was it because the master put him there? Was it because the master, the master took something from him that wasn't his? No, it was simply because the bondservant chose to believe something that wasn't true and to live off of that truth, that mistruth, the misperception, rather than living in the truth of the generosity, the intimacy, and the compassion of the master for him. That's it. That's all it is. And if you think this is strange, this is a strange idea that Jesus is presenting, 
that the master's judgment is for the perception, the misperception of the bondservant to become his reality, then, then, you, then you, we've missed some of the story. Like this has actually been the way the story has been told from the very beginning. In fact, this is the way the psalmist in Psalm 18 says it. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. For those who have received mercy, you're merciful. For those who have recognized in the way in which you live a purity, the way in which you have created and ordained and set the world to be, the, there's goodness. For those who have themselves followed in that light, it's pretty clear. But for the crooked, the ones who miss and misperceive, it seems really torturous, dark and bitter and lamenting. In some ways, the ones who lived on the life given to them by the master, good and faithful, in a way aligned with the nature and the character of the master, they received more than they could have imagined. And the one whose way of life was passive out of fear or contempt or a misperception of the master, loss would have been given to them and was allowed to feel the loss. That's what's happening. They're allowed to feel it, to feel the stumbling of faith, the bitterness of faith. Again, this is not an outsider. This is an insider. This is the one wholly committed. As the apostle Peter, having heard this story as one himself impassioned for the kingdom of God, desiring it to come about often in ways that were very different than the way it actually was coming about in Jesus, wrote years later to his faith family, there is a way that is ineffective and unfruitful in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a way of living in the kingdom that is ineffective and unfruitful, that feels like bitterness and lament, that feels ineffective in the things that you were given. And it's that way because you're nearsighted, because you're blind, because you're stumbling through life because you don't see the truth of the king and the kingdom. So what are we to do with it? How does, how do we, where do we go from here? Again, I told you we might discuss some things if, if I didn't take too long, but I took too long. So what we're gonna do just for a few moments, is in a quiet space. We're gonna have some questions up on the screen. And we're just gonna ask these. These are questions that we're gonna sit in for a couple minutes and think about, to contemplate. And it can be questions that we take into lunch with us afterwards, into the week ahead. And it's questions that we'll come back to as a faith family in the coming days. But let me ask this question. What perceptions of life with God do you share with the final bondservant, the bondslave? I mean, listen, if, if we're being honest, we, we've all had misperceptions at times. Like we've all misperceived who God is in Jesus and the life that he expects of us. And we've felt that tension. We've felt the blindness and the darkness of trying to live a faith with that lack of clarity. We felt the lamentableness and the bitterness of trying to live faith without that clarity, right? So in what ways do we share some of the misperceptions? Things that in our mind are true, but in reality are not. And then how has this story, has Jesus' stories for those been, um, that have gone through this month, how do those reshape our vision of the kingdom and our place within it?
What about the nature and character of our king and his kingdom and our place within it has changed? And this year, what might look different because of that? Let me do this. I'm gonna pray for us. And then, if you're new with us, we do this quite often, but we're just gonna take a few minutes of quiet silence. And so, um, if you're not comfortable closing your eyes, uh, we just ask that you kind of just kind of look at the ground. It kind of allows you to be in your space, allows people to be in their own space. And we're just gonna sit in these questions. Don't feel like you've got to answer both of them right now. Maybe if you want, just let the Spirit kind of press on one of them. And then just sit there and ask the Lord. Deal with him with it. Have a dialogue with him. Asking him those questions to show you the truth of those questions. Let me pray, and then we'll just be quiet for a couple minutes. Father, I thank you that, um, I thank you for the absurdity of your kingdom. How incredible it is that the way your son describes life with you and life with you and one another is meant to be is in language that seems out un, almost unbelievable of how much you think of us and trust us, what you expect of us, how gracious and generous and amazing it is. And at the same time, Father, Lord, I confess that it's hard for me in its absurdity to believe it, to trust you enough to actually live and experience the thing you say that is ours, your life in us through Jesus. So help us, Father, as ones who long to be wholly possessed by you, who know that our life comes from you and all we have is what you've given us to do so, Father, Lord, well and faithfully, not out of fear, but out of ones who know that we are loved and capable and included. Help us, Father. In your son's name we pray.
I know it's not enough time, um, but we also want to honor those who are helping our kids. <laughs> but here's the thing. The, the parable that we just told kind of ends in a um, rather unsavory place, right, if we're honest. Like we don't like the end of this parable. We would really like it if it, uh, if it didn't end this way, um, if there was a different conclusion. And, and in the same way that um, some of the other parables kind of leave an openness to it, we feel like there's not as much openness in this parable, right? So we don't know what the older son did when he was invited to come into the party to leave his, his bitter, trying to earn what the father had given him, his lack of understanding of what the father had given him that kept him out of the joy of the father. We, lo- we love to think that, that in the openness that he just came inside, or maybe even the, the ones who, um, who labored all day first and recognized that they were given the same wages and generous wages as the ones who labored just for an hour. We love to, to think that they recognize the generosity and graciousness of the, the giver and empower and dignifier of them and went into the joy and celebration of those who had gone before them and received. Um, and both of the parables kind of set us up for that potential, right? But this parable seems different, Right? It ends at this kind of like what feels like this condemnation. But here's the thing. While the parable ends here, the story doesn't. Right? Remember where we said at the beginning where the story is going. The direction that Jesus is telling this story. That after this story is told, what does Jesus do? He goes to the cross. He goes into a place where he is accused and tried unfairly, beaten and, and hung and murdered put in the place of lowest place, taking our sins upon himself. And he dies for those who saw clearly and those who didn't. For those whose perception was well, who trusted and lived the life of following him and those who didn't. Because what was Jesus' ministry filled with at that point? Only people who misperceived And so, if you would, stand with me. And as we've done throughout this this season, as we start the year off, we're gonna conclude with proclamation and song. And as Chaz sings, as Chaz leads us in song, is a chance for you to respond. And the only response that's required is trust, right? So when you're ready, come and grab the communion elements that are up here. Grab it and take it back to your seat. And in faith, receive what the master is entrusting you with. His life poured out for you. His life broken so that your life might be whole. So that you and I might have all that we need to live and to live abundantly. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you. Jesus, thank you. Help us to see to see that even when we don't see well, you give us all that we need. In your name, amen. I love you more For your mercy never fails me all my days I've been held in your hands The moment that I wake up Till I lay my head I will see The goodness of